book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Uh, we are starting a series, not on Jeremiah, but a series called Tears. This has been 11, 12, almost 13 years in the making. Um, and I'm only doing three weeks. Originally, I had thought about doing like six weeks on tears, and I thought to myself, uh, no one's going to come back after six weeks of talking about tears. So we've cut it in half. We're going to finish out the month talking about this, uh, this powerful subject of tears. Uh, is anybody a crier in the house when it comes to TV shows, movies? Man, I got people proud of it. Got a couple guys in, in the house. Um, back on February 28th, I put it out on Facebook. Does, is there any movie or song that moves you to tears? And I had 176 comments. I put, some, I put a scripture up there. I get five likes. I bring up crying, 176 comments and conversations that started up. So I went through and did a tally of the top five movies. I mean, when it came to, uh, there's a couple songs that made people cry, but when I looked at what did people agree on that they cried the most. Number one, number one was Pixar movies. Number one thing that causes people to cry. If you've never seen Up, grab some Kleenex. The first five minutes will wreck you, and then you'll be happy the rest of the time. You're like, why would I watch something that does that to me? It's like watching a Lions game. The first quarter will wreck you, and then you move and get better maybe from there. Uh, number two, what we have is Steel Magnolias. Magnolias? Mongolias? Mag whatever it is, yes. Um, Steel Magnolia. Is that, what it, is that how I'm supposed to say it? I've never seen it. Do not lend me your copy of it. I will not watch it. I'm just telling you, uh, there's nothing blowing up. There are no lightsabers. I'm probably not going to engage in it whatsoever unless you're telling me, no, somebody from space arrives, then I might. And if they don't arrive, you lied to your pastor. Um, but that was a very popular one. Another one, Homeward Bound. 1993, Homeward Bound. If you've seen that movie where two dogs spend the whole movie trying to get rid of the cat, you all seen that movie? I don't think that's the subject of the, the, the storyline of the actual movie, but that one made people cry. Um, what was the, the number four? Boy, I'm trying to think of what number four is. Number five, I do know what number five was. Number five that got the most votes was my best friend's wife who posted a mocking post about me and my best friend crying during Les Miserables. Um, yes, I do cry during Les Miserables. I will, in fact, I took my daughter. Uh, somebody blessed us with tickets. Uh, last time I came to Kalamazoo, I took Cammie. And I can't remember what, was, what song I started crying. I didn't like just cry. I started crying. For which my daughter, she got out some Kleenex. And I'm like, oh, she's being moved by this thing that moves me. And she handed it to me. And she goes, do you realize I only brought these for you? What made me angry about this 176 comments is not a single one picked the right movie to cry in. And it's that great gospel movie, Rocky II. If you don't cry at the end of Rocky II, you are a robot. You need Jesus in your life. Best, it's just one of my favorite movies of all time. And at the very end, I will cry. And we'll tell you that even at Christmas time, when we We'll listen to Oh Holy Night in the Car. Ask her. Anytime you hear that transition, fall on your knees or hear the angels, I literally would just start weeping in the car. It doesn't matter where we're at, we're in traffic. If I just yelled at the person in traffic, I will just openly weep. Um, we all cry, every single one of us. Some of you, it's harder to cry than others, and that's fine. We're all a little bit different in the house. We all have different emotional temperaments, but we all have in our bodies something called the, lacrim the, the lacrimentation system. 
Um, this system, the lacrimation system, is the process by which tears come out. And now please note that just about every animal on the planet has a lacrimation system, but we are the only proven mammals, the only proven entity on earth for which our emotions bring out our tears. Now, some scientists will argue that dogs um, share tears out of emotions. Um, some, of, uh, some believe that gorillas share tears out of emotions, but it is proven that us human beings, we have emotions that drive our tears. Now, you may not know this, but there are three types of tears. There are basal tears. Basal tears are tears that you're crying right now. Some of you are crying at how terrible my jokes are this morning. But every one of us have basal tears. And these are, this is the natural hydration of our eyes. Basal tears, they coat the eyes, supply the eye with nutrients, um, protects our eyes from drying out. And they are constantly shedding basal tears, even though you will not even notice them. And then secondly, we've got something called reflex tears. Reflex tears are, uh, are or called irritant tears, and they result when foreign particles or the presence of an irritant touches our eyes, such as when you are cutting onions and those vapors get to your eyes, you start shedding reflex tears. Or maybe, you, um, maybe you're in Walmart or Meyer and you walk by somebody with very strong perfume and your eyes water. It's the vapors that get irritant tears. Some of you with your past, no show of hands, have been pepper sprayed by the police. What happens? You went through tears. Yes, I'm looking at, and I'm not going to a few of you. I'm just kind of looking down right now. But we all go through reflex tears because when it hits our eyes, these larger tears form and they help try to drive out that which doesn't belong. And then we have something called emotional or what is also referred to as psychic tears. And it's not psychic in terms of like the tears predict anything. It's all about the tears con connected to our psyche or our emotions. And these tears happen when we are overcome with emotion. Now, look, look at this. This is so cool. With basal and reflex tears, the chemical makeup is water, electrolytes, proteins, lipids, and mucins. I don't know what a mucin is, but it doesn't sound good, but apparently that's good for us. But when you are hurt, when you are heartbroken, when you have had pain or suffering experience in your body and you cry emotional tears, the substance of your tears are, dr are drastically different from the other two. Scientists have found traces of stress chemicals that could mean that when you cry, you are literally letting stress go. Also, leucine and keflin are found in your tears when you cry in pain. What are those two chemicals? They are natural painkillers. When we cry, we actually help stimulate the body to produce endorphins, which are the feel-good chemicals produced by the brain. When we cry emotional tears, we are relieving our body of toxins and hormones that contributed to elevated stress levels. In turn, when we cry in our pain, it actually helps us sleep better. It strengthens our immune system. And get this, scientists have proven that if you're willing to cry in your pain and in your stress, it actually can help you lose weight. So why are we eating kale when we ought to be crying. In fact, crying, they say, can actually lower your 
stress levels and also lower your blood pressure. Why are we bringing this up? Because when we think about simple tears, most of us did not think of three different types of tears or the chemical makeup of tears or what each individual tear does to our eye. But when I read all of that, and as I began to study the idea of tears, it's really reminded me of two things. Number one, that there is a God and the tears that God gives us is a gift from God. That every tear that I shed to me is a sign of the God that is miraculously made our bodies to care for itself, to take care of itself, to to heal itself, to release things that ought not to be there any longer, to have a release when we have things that are pent up, that God has fashioned our bodies in this miraculous way. How can you study tears and not believe that you have been sovereignly and beautifully created by God? And at the same time, when you look at tears, you begin to realize that they're not just a sign of God. I believe that tears are a gift from God. They are a gift And that gift is there to remind us that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. They are a reminder to stare inside our our soul and to pay attention to what's going on inside of us. And that brings us to the book of Jeremiah. What I love about Jeremiah is Jeremiah has a specific name. He is one of many prophets in the Old Testament, but he's got a specific name. Do you know what name he's called? He's called the what prophet? The weeping prophet. Whoever said that gets the Pop-Tart. It's the weeping prophet. He is known for his tears. In fact, the scripture says in Jeremiah 13, verse 17, it says, but you will not listen. He's speaking to the children of God. You will not listen. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. What is he talking about? The Lord's flock is taken captive. You see, in this day, we've got a fracture that has happened in the nation of Israel, a fracture that's happened happened in God's people. They have been divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And the people of God are running from God. They They have turned their back upon the Lord. King Josiah, a good king, has died. And so they have become kingless. They have begun to wander and begin to, instead of chasing after God, following after God, they begin to chase after culture. They begin to chase after their own desires. They begin to worship idols. They begin to indulge in things that were not godly. And and Jeremiah is looking at what is going on in his own culture. And God begins to call upon Jeremiah to speak into that culture because he recognizes, God says, the people, my people are going down the wrong path and I need a voice that will speak to the people, a voice that will speak to the culture, a voice that will speak up, that will say, you're going the wrong way. I think every every one of us have met people who have gone down wrong paths. I think some of us in the house, we've had children that have gone down the wrong path. There's some of you here that maybe you've got adult children that you raise them in one direction and they have gone into a completely different direction. Maybe you're here and you've got a friend that's gone down a wrong path. Maybe your family has gone down the wrong path. Maybe you braved the snow today because there's something about today that drew you to church that said, I have been going down a wrong path and I need to do something about it. And here, we've got a nation heading the wrong direction. And so you've got this tension where God desires something for this nation and the nation is going the different direction. And so there's this tension of the wrong path. And God calls this man in the middle of that, out of a comfortable life, to speak to the culture around him. And that's what we get in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. 
I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Uh, this, this is why I am very much, I am very much, very much a pro-life man. I'm a pro-life human being because even before we were in the womb, before we were formed in the womb, before our bodies fully came together, God knew us, that God has consecrated you, God has called you. I believe that God has called us to be proponents of life. And here, he says, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then, this is Jeremiah. I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't say that you're only a youth. For, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am going with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Right here, he tells Jeremiah, now if you study Jeremiah, he had a very comfortable life. Solid parents, solid upbringing, solid home. And by all the studies that I can do, that Jeremiah's family was still continuing to follow God even though the nation was going the opposite direction. And even though the nation was going the opposite direction, the family could have stayed comfortable and said, we don't want to stir up anything. We don't want to say anything. We're just going to keep following the Lord even though everybody else is going the opposite direction. But here God calls and confronts Jeremiah in his comfort and says, listen, I'm not calling you to blend in. I'm not calling you to go in the flow. I'm calling you to stand in the middle of the current of how it's flowing and to speak against it and to confront your own nation. Ladies and gentlemen, God has not called us to blend into the walls of this world, to just simply blend into the culture. We live in what I believe is a modern-day Babylon, a place, a nation, a world that seeks after what it wants, and we follow what we, what we only desire. And the truth out there is my truth, and your truth is different from my truth, and we've got away from the truth. And in the midst of all that, God wants to raise up generations of people that will speak to Babylon. Babylon needs prophets that will rise up. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I are those prophets ready to be filled with the Spirit of God to reach the world around, you, around them. And now it's easy to do it. It's easy to do it when life is going good. It's more difficult to do it when life is in a struggle. I wrote it this way. People know you love them when you care enough to engage in the hardest parts of their lives. People know you love them when you choose to engage in the hardest parts of their lives. I know it's easy to draw close to somebody that's having a good hair day. It's easy to get close to somebody that's got a smile on their face. It's easy to engage in conversation when somebody looks like they've had their morning coffee. But I tell you what, for some reason, when we think that somebody's had a rough day, a rough moment, or a rough life, why is it that we keep our distance until they feel a little bit better in order for us to feel comfortable enough to approach them? But God has not called us to walk into the comfort of people's lives or wait for the comfort of people's lives to happen. God has called you and I to storm the gates of hell and to interact with people who are on one path that need to hear the light of the gospel. Do you know what the light needs to speak to? It's those living in darkness. We cannot be people that only speak light to the lights. God's called us to be Jeremiah's. And, to, and people will know that we love them, not by meeting them in the good moments, meeting them at the birthday parties and the grad parties. Those are all wonderful. But how often do we engage them in the hardest most difficult moments of their lives. And so God plucks Jeremiah up out of this, out of a comfortable path, and he gives them a new direction. Look at the new direction. 
Verse 9, the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put words in your mouth. See, I have set to you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. Look at the message. To pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overthrow. To build and to plant. And some people that would love to take this and they want to take this uh, to, to do on a governmental level. I think this actually goes on much deeper. That God has called us to speak some challenging words into people's lives. That God has, through relationship and where God has placed you, that God has put you into a place where he's called you to step out and to live boldly and to speak prophetically. What does it mean to speak prophetically? It is exactly what Jeremiah is told. To go and to speak words that will pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow and to build into the plant. I love the way God works. It's God's not here just to simply break us down. He's gonna pluck up and break down and destroy and overthrow. We can end right there and walk away and feel like, man, God does not like us today. But God never leaves us in an empty condition. Because if God removes something out of our life, it's because he's ready to build up and he's ready to grow and he's ready to flourish something within you. He doesn't leave you in the place of being broken down. He won't leave you in the place of being empty. That God wants to give a word into us to go into the world ready to see, hey, the enemy has built this up. We're ready to tear this down. The enemy has built up this standard. We're going to rip that sucker down. And what we're going to begin to raise up is a mentality and a heart after God that there is a way, there is a truth, and there is a life, and his name is Jesus. we got to be a people ready to speak prophetically and to confront, because I don't know about you, my life presently is only possible because of the confrontation of people who have loved me. I am thankful for parents that love me enough to confront me. Sometimes my dad confronted me with his hand on my backside, but dang it, it works. I'm thankful for people like Joel Stocker, thankful for John Opelouski. John will be with us in, in about a month or so. I'm thankful for people like Aaron Halev, and I'm thankful for people like Shane Bryant, Thomas Finley, people who have no problem encouraging me at the same time when something is off, my attitude is off, my words are off, there's something about my life that has pointed the wrong direction. Thank God, thank God, thank God for godly people that are willing to speak out of love and say you're going the wrong direction. And we've got to have that type of boldness, the boldness of Jeremiah, willing to call out that a direction is wrong. Pastor, do you think that will offend people? You better believe it will. But the problem is, is we've gotten so used to coddling the people that nobody knows the right direction and we need to set up a standard that said Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can do it without using a two by four, but dang it, we need to, we need to do it in such a way that calls people to the heart of God. And so Jeremiah he gets up and he proclaims to the people. He says this, if you don't turn from your ways, you're going to go into seven decades of captivity. How encouraging would that be for you to walk into your workplace and say, hey, everybody, if you don't turn from your sin, God's going to hold you captive for 70 years. Yeah, I know, it's wonderful. You're like, yeah, I'm going to get the promotion after that one. But God gave him a specific word that says, if you don't turn from the direction you're in, then you're asking for captivity if you don't turn. And so he proclaims this to the nation. He proclaims this to the people of God. And do you know what happens? Nothing happens. 
literally nothing that people continue to go their own ways. Well, pastor, what happens if I were to step up and to speak something into somebody's life? What happens if I've got a good friend? I've got a family member. I've got a spouse. I've got a child. And I speak to them the truth of who God is and maybe the truth of the direction that they're heading because it's very unhealthy. What's going to happen? I've got a good word for you this morning. Write this down. I don't know. Because I can't promise you how that's going to result. But that's the difference between the kingdom and our culture. The culture rewards results. God rewards faithfulness. Some of y'all need to kind of tattoo that on your heart. Some of us are so busy trying to get results. When God hasn't called you to necessarily get results, God's called you into obedience. God's called you into faithfulness. God's called you into a place where you can get a hold of a word and be willing to go with his leading. And when God says, I need you to speak to this friend. I need you to speak to this neighbor. I need you to speak to this person. I need you to speak to your sister. I need to speak to your brother. I want to utilize you. God has not asked you to lead them through the through the, the, the sinner's prayer, so to speak. That would be great. That would be wonderful. But God has not called you to a result. God called you to faithfulness because some of us think the kingdom of God has all rested upon me, myself, and I. And if I don't see the result, then we really didn't see a miracle. God, help us to think less of ourselves and more of you and realize you are bigger than our simple actions. God's called us to be faithful. He's called us to be faithful. And so I've wrestled with Jeremiah. I've been into the book of Jeremiah for the past two, three weeks digesting it. And so I, I wrote down just a couple observations and then we're gonna wrap this sucker up this morning. Just a couple of observations. Number one, write this down. This is important. Sometimes consequences must occur for there to be restoration. This is a hard one to preach because I had two amens over here and I didn't think I'd get any amens on that. So I'm gonna celebrate that this morning. Sometimes consequences must occur. I've had people debate me on this on years. Well, they don't have to. You know what? You're right. They don't have to. But sometimes they must because we refuse to change the direction of our lives. Sometimes they must happen. There's a type of parenting called reality parenting. And what reality parenting is this. I subscribe to it. I think it's a great style of parenting. It is allowing your child to make a decision and you allow your child to reap the consequence of that decision. For example, like if you live maybe a mile from your child's middle school or high school and you tell your child, it's time for you to wake yourself up, get yourself ready, and if you oversleep, I'm not driving you to school. If you wake up early enough, I will drive you to school. And reality parenting says this, you let them sleep in without waking them up, they wake up late and they have to walk to school, they have to have the, the consequences of being late for school, the classes they missed and whatever comes along with that. That's reality parenting. I read an example of reality parenting where somebody was showing up to the preschool to get their kid and the kids always are on the playground playing at the very end and parents come up, get their kids and they leave and this parent says, I showed up and my kid ran from me and I just can't keep up with my kid like that so I just looked at a friend and said, hey, could you watch my son I'll be back in 10 minutes. And so the mom left, came back with an ice cream cone and sat on the park bench and the kid ran over. We're getting ice cream? Nope. We were going to get it afterwards, but because you ran away from me, you get to sit and watch me enjoy. Some of you are like, that's abusive. That's genius. Because you know what's gonna happen the next time mom shows up to the playground? That kid's gonna run over and gonna learn from it. Some of you think that's terrible parenting. 
I don't think your parents yet if you think that's terrible. It's wonderful. Why, why does God allow this? Because love allows lessons to be learned. Love allows lessons. And listen, there are things that are on our wrong path that God wants to rescue us from. And honestly, if we would listen, there's a lot of things that we wouldn't have to go through and navigate through. But there are times that we've said, God, I want to have my own way. And God answers prayer. And sometimes we got to rest in the consequences of those decisions if we actually want to see redemption. But that leads me to my second observation in the scripture. That sometimes God allows for there to be consequences. But secondly, I love this. Jeremiah never left. He never left Judah. He never left the people of God. He said, there's going to be consequences. If you don't depart from your path, there will be consequences. And once they made the decision and they begin to incur the consequences, Jeremiah did not drop the mic and walk away. He did not say, peace out, see ya. Don't judge me for that. I don't know where that came from. It's like something from the Fresh Prince right there. He comes in the middle of their pain. He didn't simply stand watching in judgment. He stood with them. In fact, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll read that he ended up getting thrown into a pit. He ended up being thrown into captivity. He almost lost his life because he decided to stand with his people in pain. See, standing with someone through their pain speaks encouragement beyond anything that you can give from your own capacity. Let me tell you that there are so many people who have said, Pastor, I've seen people on wrong paths. I feel like God wants me to do something at work. God wants me to be a part of this issue, part of the situation, but I don't know what to say. I'm here to say, stop worrying about what you're going to say because your presence will speak way more than your words will ever speak. And just like Jeremiah, God says, listen, don't worry about it. I will put words in your mouth. We've got the Spirit of God that will remind you, what Scripture says, of what Jesus had said. The Spirit of God will give you words to say. But most of the time, if we could just relinquish the worry about what we are going to say and just dive in and be fully present with people in their pain. Because when people are in their captivity of their pain and their addiction, they need your presence. That leads me to my third observation about Jeremiah, that he experiences the pain with them. In other words, he cries with them. They are crying out in their pain of captivity, and he doesn't stand far off. He doesn't stand on a neighboring hill where many of the prophets of of Jerusalem, of Judea, of, 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 of Israel, many of the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, and this is what the Lord's saying. Jeremiah was different. Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord is saying to all of us. And there's something about Jeremiah that slips into a mode where he doesn't stand with his nose up in the air. I told you so. I told you so. He doesn't say, I told you so. He's like, listen, what you're going to go through, I'm going to step into. He doesn't stand over them. He stands with them. And he experiences the pain with them and begins to cry with them. And I think this is so powerful. This has rocked my world this whole week. Because I wrote this down in my notes earlier this week, I just simply said, we all need a weeping prophet in our life. What is a weeping prophet? It is somebody who sees the best in us. They can see the best without ignoring reality. Do you realize you can see the best in somebody without ignoring the reality of what's happened in their life? You can see the best in them without ignoring what they have done with their life. 
Faith doesn't ignore circumstances. It instills the greatest reality in the midst of that, that Jesus is alive, he's real, and he can set free. A weeping prophet sees the best. A weeping prophet is somebody who can speak God's truth into us. Now, now listen, I get people lined up. You want me to speak truth into somebody's life? I am ready to do that. People that are itching to do that scare the life out of me. But I need someone who can see the best, someone that can speak the best. And number three, someone who can walk through the pain with us. We all need a weeping prophet. Let me word it this way. We all need to be a weeping prophet. Somebody that, we, that can walk into a workplace and recognize somebody in pain and walk over and see the best in that individual and not only see the best in them, so when we can speak the best into them and talk to them about hope, talk to them about peace that passes understanding, talk to them about the healing presence of God, offer to pray, offer to engage, and not just do that and speak to them, but somebody says, can I walk through this thing with you? There's something that I've determined in my heart that when I know somebody's in personal darkness, I refuse to let them walk alone. God raised up weeping prophets that will look and and try to see the people around us that are in darkness and refuse to allow people to live there. Lord Jesus, let Kafers be a people that would be like Jesus, that will walk into the shadows, not so that we can be consumed by it, so that we can cook on the light and help bring an illumination into people's darkness. I'm thankful for my mom. She watches these every once in a while. Mom, if you're watching, you have been my weeping prophet. The days of listening to her sing and and worship services, watching her worship, and then at the end of the service, we would come down to the front. We'd call it the altar. And she would come bring me down by the hand, and we would kneel. And I remember just feeling her arm around me and her just crying over me, praying, just praying over me for my future, praying for me over temptations, praying for me over my path, praying for me over a future wife and future family. I grew up with a weeping prophet in my life, somebody that was willing to shed tears. And those tears in that moment were not just probably tears of healing for her, but they were healing for me. Because when we have somebody weeping over us, those tears do more than helps the individual that begin to bless the people around. That's why I love the scripture. I'll read it off my iPad. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20. Jeremiah says, the harvest is past and the summer is ended and we're not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn I am, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there, there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, verse 1 that the head, my head were waters and my fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. If you study that scripture, it transitions from the voice of Jeremiah to the voice of God. Not only is Jeremiah weeping and shedding tears over his people, but God, it's this anthropomorphic approach. God weeps over his people. See, when I see tears, I see compassion. Compassion that Jeremiah is pouring over his people. Compassion that God is pouring over. You see, when we shed tears, there are healing agents. But listen, when you shed tears for others, when you show compassion, there's a healing agent that speaks into other people. They needed a strong word. Israel needed a strong word. But more than just a strong word, they needed a strong presence. And that's what Jeremiah's tears were. Worship band, if if you'd join me. In his retirement, Thomas Jefferson found the University of Virginia. 
Because Jefferson entrusted that students would take their study seriously, the code of discipline was lax. And unfortunately, his trust proved misplaced when the behavior of students led to a riot in which professors who tried to restore to order end up getting taken out by a lot of students and were attacked. And the following day, a meeting was held between the university's board, which Jefferson was a part of, and students, the larger body, who committed this. And the group was so huge because nobody knew exactly who had done it, so the whole student body shows up. And Jefferson began the meeting by saying, this is one of the most painful events of my life. And he began to break down, overcome with emotion. He burst into tears in front of the student body. Another board member asked the riders at one point to come forward and give up. Nearly every one of them came forward. Did you get that? The student body shows up. And the board says, listen, we need people to show up. If you admitted, come forward, we need to know who did this. And every, nearly every rider came forward and later, People asked, what moved you? Was it the words of Thomas Jefferson? But one of them said, it wasn't Mr. Jefferson's words. It was his tears. There's something about his tears shed, the compassion that he showed when he began to share his heart, that all of a sudden those tears didn't just bring healing to an individual, but those tears, that compassion pouring out began to touch the heart of the people. Psalms 56 verse eight says that God notices our tears. I love it. it says, you keep account of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Does this mean that God walks around with a bottle and he's collecting all of the tears that come from your eyes? No, this is very poetic language. What it's saying is that God notices every single tear that falls from your, he notices every single care, every single issue. In fact, I read one article this week that said when a person cries, and the first drop comes from the right eye, it's happiness. When it comes from the left eye, it's pain. When it comes from both, it's frustration. And when I look at that and I look at Psalm chapter 56, I recognize that whether you're going through pain, you're going through frustration, you're going through happiness, that God notices and keeps track of all of that. And I don't know where you're at in this world and in life right now. You may feel like Jeremiah and you feel like you've got a burden to go and to speak truth and to be a weeping prophet, but I believe that there's numbers of people here that you're here and you feel like the nation of Israel, you feel like the people of Judah. And you're living in the consequence of your own decisions. Maybe this morning. You're living in the consequence of somebody else's decisions. And you're going through a time of pain and a time of tears. I want to speak a few things into you first and foremost. That many of your tears may go unnoticed by people, but none of them are missed by God. I, I speak that because for every person that feels like for every tear that you've shed over your broken life, over a missing child that is just on the wrong direction, uh, tears that you've shed over just uh, decisions that you regret, that you've regretted for years, when you've lived in the wake of the consequences that you have been broken. And I'm here to say that your tears have not gone, gone unnoticed by God. And number two, within your tears lies the temptation to give up on God but trust God in the dark because he's up to something. Don't give up on God. You may not be able to see what he's doing. There are times that you can be so tear-filled that you can't see straight. I'm here to say, lift up your eyes. Trust God. He sees your tears. Don't give up on him. And number three, and lastly, Jesus does his best work in our times of tears. 
Our nation is crying right now. Our nation is still weeping at what we've lost over the past two years. Our nation is still weeping at the catastrophe that has been political uh, bias and, and, and brokenness. Our nation is crying over what, what is normal and what isn't normal. What should we embrace and what can we embrace? Our nation is weeping. But I'm here to say that even in the midst of tears, like with the people of Israel there in 70 years of captivity in Babylon, that just because there is consequence doesn't mean God is not on the move. He's still working. He's still operating. He's still healing. He's still restoring. I mean, you can track off throughout the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels. And I began to write down every time I saw tears, every time I saw tears, Jesus was ready to work. Because when you get tears mixed with the compassion of God, miracles are ready to break.